0: Welcome to episode one of National Security, a show about finding peaceful solutions to political problems. If you ever talked about politics with someone, even if they're your good friend or family, you might think what we want to achieve is nearly impossible. Well, you're right, which is why we're inspired to produce this show. And it may need to run for years or decades to fulfill its purpose, if not even longer, considering billions of people fought for peace over thousands of years and, well, we're still fighting for peace. Another challenge to this show is me, your host, Ryan Thompson. I'm a biased, apologetic liberal. Traits that'll get us nowhere without learning a few things from the right. And optimistically speaking, it might be rare when that happens. If our odds are slim, but each show inspires just one listener to think more peacefully about a political problem, I think that's a big payoff considering what's at stake. Today we explore the cause of terrorism. Amidst no budget or guest, I'm hoping you'll bear through any obvious points or old news mentioned to understand it, because we can't realize anything important without reconsidering the past. Many of us worry that any day now other countries or people from them might attack America in ways paling in comparison to 9-11. Simply put, those concerns make perfect sense. Yet a more accurate way to rephrase the statement is every country or even person in this world has the potential to attack America. To be clear, even America's own citizens and staunch allies prepare for this possibility. The paradox of this obvious yet surprising fact will threaten Americans for as long as their fears are unreasonable. The great political divide in this country just grew wider over our new president's public statements and executive order about terrorism. Tens of millions of Americans wholeheartedly believe he's right and feel safer by his actions. Most of these folks are either educated, employed, charitable, creative, taxpayers, good to their friends and family respected by people that look a lot different than them, or some to all of the above. There are also tens of millions of Americans who can't disagree more with our president and his supporters, me being one of them, because we may not like what they learned in school, who they work for, what they donate to, their creative themes, how they want their taxes applied. The values they teach their kids or our perceived impression of those who respect them. By these reasons, we segregate ourselves from them just as by a different expression of those same exact reasons, well, they couldn't be happier about it. No matter how epic Americans' political achievements are, we'll always debate each other over who's ruining this country by using two ways of looking at one reason in support of one objective. Considering nobody's right all the time, I hope this uncanny process never ends. So how do we know who's right? Well, the good news is, one expression of a reason is usually better than the other. So all you have to do is pick the right one. For example, let's say two people who care about our economy are disagreeing over the legality of slave labor. Well, anyone with a brain and a heart knows slavery is wrong. Among them, believe it or not, was Robert E. Lee, the surprise of which introduces a political problem yet to be peacefully solved. And that is, every group of Americans is right about at least one minority perspective our lives and liberties depend on. Yet these lives are split on the issues. This combo of urgent beliefs and high stakes, often prior to even knowing the truth, is what inspires anyone to fear, hate, or kill each other over politics. Just like 620,000 of us did before making the right decision on slavery. Well, fortunately that was 152 years ago, and we've made enough progress to confidently reassure ourselves most people will never hate or kill anyone for any reason. But considering many folks felt the same way before our Civil War, reassurance is susceptible to fear. The fear a group will enact laws to hurt us, or that they'll attack us, or the fear we need to attack them before they attack us. Even the brightest, most peaceful members of any political party aren't immune to these fears. At this point, some of you may find this exploration uselessly obvious and proclaim such fears gave birth to our nation 241 years ago. Although I value what we're considering today, I completely agree that fear caused the American Revolution, but just the war part of it. In terms of recent history, I also believe these fears inspired Timothy McVeigh and Terry Nichols to blow up the Oklahoma City Federal Building, Eric Robert Rudolph to bomb the Olympics, a gay bar and a women's clinic, 27 attacks by the Jewish Defense League during the 1970s, their thwarted plot to bomb Congressman Issa's office in 2001, Chris Dorner's killing spree against police officers and their families, Paul Anthony Chionch's spree at the Los Angeles airport against the TSA, Sam Melville's bombing of the Marine Midland Building, Dylan Roof's attack on the Emanuel African-American Methodist Church. Buford O. Furrow Jr.'s attack on the Los Angeles Jewish Community Center, and many more. White men, liberal women, African Americans, Jews, Christians, atheists, Latin Americans, even animal rights activists, have feared they must defend their beliefs with terrorism. And when they do, their perceived urgency and beliefs take precedence over their own lives. Now don't fear I'll avoid recognizing radical Islamic terrorism, or as others prefer calling it, the Muslim religion in general. I was just getting the rest of us out of the way before focusing on Muslims for the rest of the show. As an aside, I want to apologize right now to our Muslim listeners before doing this. Please understand that most listeners probably aren't Muslim, you have more tolerance for criticism than those listeners, and it's easier to focus on our differences with the rest of the world than those between ourselves. And this last point I'm sure you'll agree on. So from here on, we'll consider two groups, Americans, except for Muslims, and Middle Eastern Muslims including radical Islamic terrorists. Now unified, we, the American people who aren't Muslim, have put aside our differences for a few minutes to unify against the problem of radical Islamic terrorism. Radical Islamic terrorists have been attacking the United States. I wholeheartedly believe every one of them did something ruthless and unjustified. Our new president's response to radical Islamic terrorism is an immediate ban on Muslim refugee programs, as well as travel to the US by anyone originally from one of seven predominantly Muslim countries Even if they've been resident citizens of allied countries for decades, have personally risked their lives for our military as informants or translators, or a college-educated, permanent U.S. residents who started families here and worked for companies like Apple or Google. In respect of our temporary unification, there will be no debate over the president's actions. Instead, let's explore why radical Islamic terrorists attack the United States of America. Here's what we know so far. It isn't because we don't have a wall, because many of these terrorists were legal U.S. residents or born in America, aren't Mexican, or launched airborne attacks. It isn't our refugee programs, because up until last year, it never brought a Muslim terrorist to America. It's not because Muslims are satanic, but I probably can't get radical Christians to consider that. All I can say to them is my heart feels different than yours. Radical Islam says, I know you aren't, but what am I? And how are either of you going to study one another and get to the bottom of this without being ostracized, hurt, or killed by your peers? Until they can fear a little less, radical Christians and radical Islamists must accept their teacher's orders as God's word, even if God never said it or meant it, which doesn't give a guy like me much hope of working with them to coexist. It also inspires the general public to doubt and chastise them, which is a big problem. Because while most Americans can sensibly dislike radical Christianity or radical Islam, Feeling like everyone is against you, including family and friends, can have a powerful effect. Anyone publicly swearing by an exclusive violent outlook on life in general must fear they have a lot to lose if they're wrong. The potential embarrassment of that alone can inspire self-fulfilling prophecies of their holy duty to commit terrorism. Omar Mateen and his victims understood that fear, which is one of many comprising the root cause of all terrorism, if not war in general. Do countries war over money? energy, conspiracies, noble causes? Yes, but none are possible in absence of fear. Looking abroad, what fears pervade Muslims of the Middle East enough to threaten America's national security? Our new president's refugee and travel ban arrives upon the heels of an American and military intelligence operation over the past 64 years in Iran, 37 in Iraq, and 6 in Syria. Every violent, major anti-American action by these countries, none of which I approve of or believe in is a direct response to an attack, invasion, sanction or real threat. Although I despise any act of violence against us by these countries, I don't understand the purpose of our wars against them. Nor do many of the U.S. military and political leaders who launched them. It felt right when they asked for our money and blood, but in hindsight, I don't know why. The net effect of all this meddling is obvious. The more people are attacked, the more they want to attack the attacker. Many Israelis might agree it's related to the fear of, as one person might put it, being wiped off the face of the earth. Now, there's a very popular argument out there claiming the most peaceful thing you can do as a country is threaten to wipe people off the face of the earth. It's called the nuclear deterrent. This is a tough one for me because the Cuban Missile Crisis, the Cold War, Russia, China, and Pakistan's nuclear arsenals, built-in response to the fear over ours, haven't made me feel any safer. Yet it's all moot, though, because 72 years of testing this theory has scared enough people into giving us a reason to keep them. So let's elaborate on this attack the attacker theory. We're going to pick one banned country and seek insight on how some of their citizens might become radical Islamic terrorists. A 37-year-old Iraqi citizen has experienced seven wars so far, and one of them isn't over. Although the first involved Iran, America manufactured both countries' weapons in battles costing over half a million lives by the time that kid was eight. At 11 years old, they would have survived a year-long American bombing campaign destroying their major cities. At 15, they'd no other witness a small war over that year involving the United States. At 18, this person would witness a large-scale four-day bombing campaign by American cruise missiles. Now, between 23 and 31 years old, this Iraqi survives a massive American airstrike, invasion, and occupation, destroying enough infrastructure, public services, and citizen morale to prevent this country's defense against radical militants who are too blinded by their misinterpretation of religion to contemplate the intentions of their political backers. The proliferation of these radicals, along with a lack of infrastructure at the Iraqi or Americans' disposal, is so great that even a major surge of U.S. military can't prevent it after at least two years of trying. Now surprisingly, amidst all these wars, the greatest hardship Iraqis experienced are U.S. sanctions barring the sale of oil, which generates nearly all of the country's revenue. If our hypothetical yet typical Iraqi was employed, they might have to work a long day to afford a modest meal. Drinkable water was scarce, effective medical treatment and supplies were nearly non-existent, power service was rarely available, many citizens grew sick from depleted uranium and exploded U.S. munitions, 10% of infants were dying, and the population shifted to 45% of its citizens being under 14 years old. This lasted for at least 12 years. I think it's reasonable to conclude a probability this Iraqi reaches a crossroads in their life by the time they're 31. In one hand, they might weigh an irresistible notion that the U.S. may be nothing short of evil, especially if they learn of torture in the prisons. On another hand, they consider whether Saddam could have avoided the Gulf War, the peculiarity of American soldiers' civility to them, and rumors America itself is nothing like the attacks serving as their only witness to our country's character. I gather this fork in the road provides the Iraqi three options. The first is turning around and rolling with the punches of survival, and this is what most of the country's people probably do. The next option, nearly as available as the first, is either seeking revenge against America or protection against terrorism by joining the radical Islamic terrorists and hoping their twisted interpretation of religion will grow less confusing over time. The last option, which is rarely available, is an invitation to America in exchange for years of service helping its military police investigate or rebuild their country. If that Iraqi chooses America and survives the potential consequences of that decision, the next steps will require leaving their family and friends, quickly learning English, affording enough American education to recertify practicing their career, and never violating a long probation to avoid sudden deportation. At the end of World War I, Many European citizens, particularly those in Germany, were also at a crossroads, but there were two roads to travel instead of three. By the end of fighting in Europe during World War II, the American government had realized the toll of war upon a population's morale and foreign policies has the potential to empower leaders like Hitler or Mussolini. If you were Jewish or another prisoner of war in Europe at the end of World War II, it was clear that any military defeating your captor and enabling your release was a savior. But if you were not among the 25% of Belarus's, 16% of Poland's, 16% of Ukraine's, 15% of Latvia's, 14% of Lithuania's, or 11% of Germany's total population that died in that war, wherein most of the survivors were not in the military, and you weren't a prisoner of war, you may have been among many offered a third option for the first time, even if your country was aligned with Hitler, or a year later, the Emperor of Japan. I'm talking about the American option. In 1944, the United Nations, an organization founded by America, largely influenced by Americans and headquartered in New York City, realized that no matter how noble a cause may be, citizens and countries destroyed by foreign militaries are often stricken with fear, if not hate, for their attackers. This is one of many reasons the UN created the refugee agencies, which in turn created the greatest least expensive asset to our national security: foreign people's goodwill for America. Adding a new ingredient to the melting pot, or more specifically, positively transforming the lives of people displaced and disenfranchised by war, using safe opportunities in America and eventually many other countries. As a result, many refugees or their children were integral in establishing peaceful trade relationships with non-allied countries, especially in Japan, China, and Russia. Over 50 million refugees have been processed through the UN Refugee Program since 1944, Four of them committed terrorism in the United States, to whom three people fell victim, and one of those terrorists was a radical Islamic person from Somalia. Other than that person, every radical Islamic terrorist that attacked America was not a refugee. Simply put, it's nearly impossible for them to pass the vetting process. Now let's go back to the Iraqi who chose to be part of the refugee program. Let's say this person is now in America, has a green card, is a taxpayer and skilled contributor to our economy. What do you imagine this person might discuss with their family back in Iraq on a phone call today? Some ideas coming to my mind are, maybe that they can't leave to visit them soon. You know, maybe a sibling's effort to visit America will likely never happen. Or maybe that a younger sibling is now certain that a refugee elder abandoned them to take sides with the great Satan. Yet ultimately, God's will shall prevail, even if he must see to it. Fear erodes our national security. Rest assured, any government we feel threatened by is only broadcasting American media that instills fear in its people because the propaganda effectively inspires citizens who fear each other to unify in fear of something else. I'm confident Americans on all sides of politics will agree it's time for us to unify in fear of something else. But my minority opinion is, amidst the truth, there will always be a bad guy out there and without disrespect for any noble value a war ever begat. The something else we must unify against is fear itself. Let's not be afraid of refugees. Let's be wise and understand their essential role in protecting our national security, and see to it, by peaceful means, that any attempt to eradicate our refugee programs, or even our critical immigration programs, are swiftly thwarted. If not for the simple reason that, according to our governing documents and sometimes our actions, it would be un-American to cower away from it. It may feel weird to speak your mind politically at times, as it does to me now, But I'd rather be proud of distinguishing myself against the consequences had I not done this. This concludes our first episode of National Security. If anyone is listening, thank you so much for doing so. If you're on the fence about this episode, but seeing the facts behind it will help, or if you firmly believe this show misrepresented any truth, email ryan at giantsteps.us, and time permitting, I'll do my best to respond. If it turns out there was any significant misrepresentation of fact... I'll correct it at the open of next week's show. Regarding that show, stay tuned for our first interview with an Iraqi refugee. Until then, take care.